0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Stanford University history professor Jennifer Burns discusses her book, Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. She speaks about the life and career of economist Milton Friedman. She's interviewed by Cato Institute Vice President for Economic and Social Policy Studies, Alex Norasta.
1: Before we get to this week's episode, we want to take a minute to ask for your help. Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit c-span.org slash donate.
0: Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism
1: for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
0: Your new book, Milton Friedman, the last conservative, is the first full biography of uh, Milton Friedman. Uh, Let's start off with, who was Milton Friedman?
2: (laughs) So, uh, Milton Friedman was probably best known as a famous economist. He, um, along with John Maynard Keynes, is one of the most influential economists in the 20th century, and he worked over the course of his career to establish an alternative to Keynesian economics and Keynesian economic policy, and he was awarded the 1976 Nobel Prize in economics. But as I show in my book, while he's first and foremost an economist, he's much more than that. Um, I also call him a philosopher of freedom because he articulated a vision of individual freedom, limited government, um, Uh, a personal initiative that really became wrapped up in the 20th century conservative movement and made him really a political icon and also a household figure.
0: So how did Americans, though, really come to know uh, Friedman? So I I read his famous book, Capitalism and Freedom, in high school. But he was also he was uh, a figure on television. He had a column. How did Americans really come to know Friedman?
2: Well, here's what's interesting. I thought, like, maybe you would imagine that, oh, capitalism and freedom was the big famous book that everyone started reading. But actually, his most famous book that really gets him started as a political figure is this 800-page book of economic history that he co-authored with Anna Schwartz called The Monetary History of the United States. And in this, they tell a story of 150 years of American history history through the lens of money, how much money there is in the economy, which sounds kind of dry. But then what they do in their most famous chapter, which was called The Great Contraction, is they go back and they examine the Great Depression. And you have to imagine this book comes out in the early 1960s. It's not that far away in time. People are still around who have lived through the Great Depression, say 30 years before or less. So... Um, Freeman and Schwartz argue that the reason the Great Depression was so bad and lasted so long was because the United States lost a third of the money in circulation um, due to the banking crisis. And then they go on to argue that the Federal Reserve System, which was supposed to act as a lender of last resort, had not done its job and had therefore let this you know, crisis in the banking sector spread throughout the whole economy and create decades of misery. Now, why this is important beyond that critique of the Federal Reserve is because it feeds into this larger question about the Great Depression and about capitalism itself. And what Friedman and Schwartz are implicitly arguing is not there is a basic flaw in the capitalist system that emerged in the 1930s. Rather, they're saying we can understand this um, as a failure of human judgment and of state management of the economy. And um, therefore, we know a few things we can fix, and um, we need not have erected the large apparatus of... Uh, policy, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, government agencies, policy interventions, and government supported the economy um, in response to the Great Depression. They basically say everyone got it wrong. Um, so this argument comes out, and it's immediately arresting. It's immediately uh, read by policymakers, widely reviewed by academics, and is also very interesting to politicians. One of the politicians who becomes very interested in this idea is Senator Barry Goldwater, who's mounting a run for um, the president in 1964. So uh, the, the first moment comes with the publication of this book and its broad discussion. And then Friedman signs on as an advisor to Goldwater and becomes one of the most effective spokespeople for what he calls a Goldwater view of economics.
0: I mean, that was quite a radical thesis at the time, wasn't it? I mean, uh, you take a look at the dominant uh, Keynesian models that were there at the time, the dominant paradigms in economics. And what's shocking, at least to a modern audience, I think, and especially to non-economists, is how little a role money played in our understanding of the economy uh, before Friedman and Schwartz really came along. And made it a big deal in their book. And and, and is it fair to say that this influence, his influence and her influence has lasted to today and still influences us?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of what Friedman and Schwartz proposed seemed outlandish and today seems common sense. You know, when they were writing the book, um, monetary policy was often said to be pushing on a string. It didn't really have any purchase in the economy or money was kind of a veil that laid over actual economic activity. And um, their argument is subtle because they're basically saying it is true that the fundamentals of economic growth and activity um, have to come from other things besides the monetary system. You can't sort of goose the economy by pushing in a lot of money and have that last in any meaningful way. But monetary policy can really knock the economy off course if done badly um, so so there's a subtlety to their argument but it's safe to say that when they made that um, there really wasn't much focus on money at all and we didn't have the kind of data we have today and um, basically Anna Schwartz in particular uh, went and sort of assembled this historical series of the actual quantity of money in the economy at different points in time and then with that 150 year lens it really gave them a broad perspective and enabled them to make arguments um, that other economists you know, really weren't interested in or hadn't seen. And so, um, yes, it's a great case of two scholars kind of burrowing into an area that their field has left behind and finding something really interesting.
0: So I want to come back to Schwartz in a second, but um, yeah. Friedman became really um, associated with and was, I think, fair to say, like the, the prime mover for this uh, new way of thinking about uh, the economy about macroeconomics uh, called monetarism, uh, which really had a long history after him, even to today. What, what is monetarism and how has it uh, impacted the world and, and central banking um, since then?
2: So uh, probably the easiest way to summarize monetarism <laughs> is with a saying that, that Friedman uh, uh, loved, loved to, loved to uh, uh, repeat, which is, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomena, And so what he meant by that is inflation starts with the central bank or with the monetary authorities, and it also ends there. And this was um, a very uh, different idea than those that had been held at the time. So um, people thought of uh, maybe inflation is caused by labor unions asking for higher wages and you get a wage price spiral. And Friedman's like, well, you know, maybe that is happening, but it's only happening if you have enough money in the economy to be driving prices up such that labor unions feel they have to ask for that and have to really pressure for that. They couldn't do it themselves. In other words, if the the quantity of money was fixed, there wouldn't be that elasticity um, to push prices up. Um, And when he talks about inflation, he's really talking about um, but pervasive and consistent rise in the price level generally. Um, so today we tend to modify inflation, um, you know, by saying, oh, it's a gas price inflation or housing price inflation or wage inflation. And Freeman was really trying to go a level deeper and say, I'm, I'm not talking about specific sectors of the economy. I'm talking about a kind of pervasive trend. So, um, what he really did was get everybody's attention on the monetary authorities and their ability to, Um, Let inflation go or their ability to hem it in. And I think what jumps off both of monetarism and Friedman's later theories, um, uh, which point to the role of expectations in inflation, is our whole monetary framework and model today. so the fact that the Federal Reserve is very open today, um, first of all, it was not in Friedman's time. It was like a <laughs> secret club. They only released reports of what they had done after the fact. They didn't really tell anyone what they were talking about. Um, and one of Friedman's insights was inflation, um, while it is connected to the monetary authorities, it has a pace driven by what people think is going to happen next. And so that's why you see things like forward guidance and all the communication uh, with the Fed. The other piece of monetarism that's really important is is Friedman's policy idea. And over time, he came up with what he called a monetary growth rule. And he basically said, Fine. Maybe we have to have the Federal Reserve. Maybe we're not ready um, to, you know, end the Fed. Um, Although earlier in his career, he thought that might be a good idea. So if we have a Federal Reserve, they should be more accountable to Congress, and they should be more accountable to everybody by saying this is what we're going to do. And he wanted them to grow the supply of money at a fixed rate. Uh, Eventually, he said something about four percent would be good, and it needs to grow because you need to have economic growth, uh, demographic change, expansion. You can't have a flat money supply. Um, But if it's growing at a steady rate, everybody can make their plans and their predictions around that steady rate. And then what should happen is we should forget about monetary policy. If we do it right, we should completely forget about it. And it sort of shouldn't matter because it's background noise. And then the other factors such as innovation, productivity growth, um, you know, uh, a change over time, um, these should be what drives economic growth. So so. again, while we don't talk about a monetary growth rule per se, the sort of modifications that were made to that idea by central bankers and by monetary economists basically came out to where we are today, which is inflation targeting um, or frameworks for monetary policy in which the policymaker says, here's what we're trying to do. And that gives outsiders the capacity to judge how well they're doing that.
0: Yeah, one of his famous lines that you bring out many times is he wants to replace the Fed with a computer uh, that could do that That's job. Right. Uh, but it's not just that Friedman was from the outside producing these theories with with Schwartz and others, but he had a rela- uh, personal relationships with many uh, Fed chairmen. I mean, one of the parts of your book that I found the most uh, emotionally effective. Was his relationship with Arthur Burns, who had become a sort of, as you tell it, a sort of father figure uh, to Friedman in, in several ways? Can you talk about his relationship with Burns, how that sort of got Friedman and in, like intensely involved with the Fed, and how that that started sort of just this, this, this long running correspondence with with later uh, Fed chairs, but also just start with um, you know his relationship with Burns and why that was so. Um, so emotionally effective, affecting.
2: Yeah, so that's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating story. He met Burns when he was um, a young man, you know, probably his late teens, early 20s, when he was an undergraduate at Rutgers. And Burns was an instructor. Um, for his economics classes. And Burns was actually not that much older than Friedman, but because they met as student and teacher, they had this kind of mentor-mentee bond. And Friedman lost his father at a young age, uh, uh, right as, towards the end of high school. So you imagine he arrives, it's the Great Depression. Um, he's getting excited about economics as a field that can offer explanations for the sort of social crisis he's seeing around him. Um, he's also a young Jewish man at a moment when opportunity is opening up, but is still quite limited by the fact of being Jewish. And here he gets to college, and he sees you know, uh, another young Jewish man who's been very successful as an economist and is now a professional economist. And the two of them really hit it off and had this um, relationship that Friedman would describe as he was my surrogate father in that he looked up to him. And as I wrote my book, what I found were these incredible letters that Friedman would send to Burns at sort of every stage of his life. And so when I wanted to know um, what is Friedman thinking and what is Friedman feeling, I would often go to what is he writing to Arthur Burns? Because, <laughs> wow. These letters were kind of like a dear diary, you know, very reflective, my hopes and fears. Um, So that relationship continues. They're always helping each other out where they can. Um, You know, Burns is trying to hire Friedman. Friedman is trying to hire Burns. But for most of their life, um it's a letter writing or visit a couple times a year relationship. They also do end up spending time in summers together um in uh near the New Hampshire Vermont border. So they they connect with each other personally and on a friendship level. So so time goes on and Arthur Burns's um career advances and he's eventually selected by Richard Nixon to be head of the Federal Reserve. And so you know, immediately the newspapers fill with articles, um, you know, saying, well, we have a monetarist in the Federal Reserve or the Federal Reserve will now be Friedmanite or, you know, Friedman is finally at the center of power. And so it seems like a great victory for him. And I see the first letters. You know, Friedman is so happy uh, that Burns is there. And then comes the bombshell. He opens the newspaper and finds that Arthur Burns is supporting what's called incomes policy. Now, incomes policy is. A Democratic party idea it's not associated with Republicans and it's basically an effort to um, use guidelines and political persuasion to convince labor unions not to raise their wages and convince businesses not to learn their raise their prices it's a, it's a way to in, inhibit inflation and inflation is starting to run in the early 70s in part because the Johnson administration is both pursuing an ambitious social agenda. And a war in Vietnam and as a consequence has been pushing for a looser monetary policy. And so now Burns comes in, um, as chair of the Federal Reserve. And instead of saying something like Friedman might expect, like, you know, the Fed will do its best to make sure this inflation doesn't get out of hand, he comes up with a completely different proposal. It's not about, uh, uh, monetary policy. And to Friedman, he is convinced that this incomes policy is a first step to wage and price controls. And so, you know, he reads this in the newspaper and then apparently he goes to sleep and then he wakes up in the middle of the night and he writes this letter that I describe in the book. And it basically says, Arthur, how could you do this? You know, I am uh, profoundly shocked and betrayed. Um, and what what really interested me was that Friedman took this intellectual difference as a real personal difference. And it really threw into question the entire relationship he had Um And Arthur Burns was very offended at this criticism and kind of pushed back. And they have a couple letters back and forth. And then Freeman kind of realizes, wait, I'm I'm a critic of the Federal Reserve. My entire public identity is built on a scholar of and a critic of the Federal Reserve. And if I disagree with what Arthur Burns is doing, I have to speak up like it's I can't just say, he's my friend, and therefore it's fine, right? So it becomes a question of sort of Friedman's own intellectual integrity. And as it turns out, before long, Burns is advocating wage and price controls, just like (laughs) Friedman predicted, which, you know, to him is just a complete backwards way to approach inflation. It won't work in addressing the fundamentals. And so there's a series of these really fraught letters, and then they just kind of fizzle out. And you know, Freeman and Burns do find a way to connect based on their long history, but the relationship is really profoundly changed. And so, for me, it was so interesting that you know he has this moment that you might think is a moment of triumph for him, but it's it's on a personal level rather tragic.
0: It is, and and one of the points that I think really brought it home is he he wrote this first letter that you describe, and then I think it was uh, either the next day or shortly thereafter. Uh, before Burns had even responded, he sends off another letter, uh, which is a little bit more personal and nicer and trying to paper over some of the, the harshness of his uh, original criticisms because I think Friedman, you know, realized what you described very well in the book is is the depth of this relationship and uh, perhaps uh, what Friedman wrote in his first letter being, being negative to that. Um, one of the and, th- and this brings me a bit, I think, to, the, the Friedman's personal life, you know his family,, yeah. uh, his background. You know, why, why was Burns such a surrogate uh, father figure? What happened uh, before Friedman went, met Burns that uh, sort of set that up and made that possible?
2: So, yeah, I, I, I begin by kind of I- examining his family life. Um, so his parents were immigrants from the, the area that would now be uh, uh, Russia, sort of Hungary, Eastern Europe. Um, and they arrive, and this is a great wave of immigration, uh, uh, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. They end up settling in a small town of New Jersey, um, <clears throat> and there's about 10 other families that are Jewish and in this much larger sort of Anglo-Protestant world. And he, Freeman from the beginning, is just absolutely brilliant. Um, and he loves math and he decides he'll be an actuary. Um, but the family that he grows up in does not have a great deal of education. They don't have a great deal of social connections. His father um, is, is sort of a middleman, arbitrager, buys low, sells high. <laughs> um, his mother runs a, a shop in their town. And so he doesn't really have a vision of <clears throat> where he can go. And so that's why when he meets Burns at Rutgers and Burns has a graduate degree, you know, has professional work as an economist um, and is from the very similar background as Friedman. He becomes just a vision of what he can be. And at that point, Friedman has lost his father. So um he's really looking for a mentor, a guide and his family, while incredibly supportive of his education, you know, his sisters who all had equally outstanding, if not better, academic records. It was just sort of, well, you're going to work to support the family, and we're going to put uh, the boy through college. And so he had you know, he had emotional support. He had financial support. But he didn't have a kind of model for his life. And Burns really becomes that. And then Burns is a safe harbor in this discipline that's only beginning to open up um, to uh, Jewish professionals. And so he knows he can always write to Burns about job questions, um, interpersonal questions and feel like Burns is on his side and on his team.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power
0: to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible.
2: Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
0: You mentioned um, the family life of uh, Friedman, and he had sisters, his mother, his father died when Friedman was fairly young. Um, and what's what's interesting, too, of course, is beyond that, the other women in his life who he co-authored with, who he worked with, who, who influenced his ideas greatly and co-authored them. Uh, we mentioned Anna Schwartz um, already. Of course, his wife, Rose Director Friedman, was a frequent co-author. But why don't you tell us a bit about uh, Anna Schwartz, with whom he co-authored uh, Monetary History of the United States? I mean, how common was it back then for economists who were overwhelmingly male uh, to work with women?
2: It was was very uncommon, especially to have women as co-authors. Now, Schwartz was someone who had a similar background, immigrant background to Friedman, but she grew up in New York City. So she went to Barnard College, and pretty quickly her professors figured out she was brilliant, and she actually started working as a co-author with her professors in college and then afterwards when she went to graduate school. So um, she then went to the National Bureau of Economic Research, where she was working under Arthur Burns. And um I talk in some detail in the book about the relationship with Burns and Schwartz, which was not positive. <laughs> um and Schwartz had um spent a lot of time in Colombia. And she had somehow never gotten a doctorate for all her work, and she had co-authored a three-volume history on the British economy, um, but she was still technically a doctoral student. And so then, when she was working for the National Bureau of Economic Research, Burns got the idea to put her and Friedman together, and it it really was an inspired idea. they were both um, willing to investigate questions that other economists weren't interested in. They were both incredibly smart, but they had different casts of minds. So Schwartz um, was willing to go deep into the empirical research, which Friedman was willing to do that. He simply didn't have the time as a tenured professor in Chicago, but this was Schwartz's full-time job. Schwartz also loved history. So as I looked at how they put the monetary history together, it really was Schwartz who went back in time. She, she wanted to look at the Civil War era and Confederate money because there were all these monetary experiments at the time. And she thought these would be very revealing um, about the role money plays in economies. Um, and she also was, you know, interested in archival research and pulled out all these stories about um, the different personalities at the Federal Reserve. So the two of them worked together for 10 years, or it was more than 10 years, it was about 12 years. And she would be in New York, he would be in Chicago, they would write letters back and forth. So we have th- this sort of paper trail of their interactions. And, um, you know, it's a story I tell in the book, so I won't tell it all here. But um, eventually Friedman figures out that she still doesn't have a doctorate. Um, and he starts saying to her, you know, mentors, like, why doesn't she have a doctorate? And it's not until a monetary history is on the cusp of publication that Columbia finally decides that Anna Schwartz um, deserves a doctorate and of course the next year the book comes out and it's really the talk of the town and um, they they got her the degree just in the nick of time Um, and so then I talk about her career as it unfolds after that by the time um, by the end of her life she has nine honorary doctorates. Um, so she really lives through this shift when women economists. There's not a place for them in the discipline, other than as sort of a worker bee, helping a male economist to where they can be recognized finally as scholars in their own right.
0: And then you uh, you talk about some of his other uh, work with female economists, uh, Dorothy Brady, Margaret Reed. Uh, you, you recount in the book that Friedman even called himself a feminist at one point. Um, why do you think he was sort of so far? ahead of the rest of the profession? Was it the um, ideas about human capital theory from the University of Chicago? Was it was it something else? Was it his background? What, what do you think explains that?
2: Uh, you know, I think part of it is that Friedman lived a life in ideas in that almost all of his closest relationships were people who shared his interest in economics and often shared his particular more free market economic orientation. So what he saw first about a person really was their ideas um, rather than say their personality or their sense of humor or also their gender. It kind of washed out for him. Now, of course, he knew these women were women, but, um, he didn't automatically assume as many of his peers seem to that, therefore, they had nothing interesting to contribute to economics. So, um, that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is that, you know, he's married to a fellow economist, Rose Director, um, who has a lot of other friends who are also women economists. So he first gets involved in consumption research, because one of them is uh, writing a paper with Rose and they're corresponding back and forth. And he kind of grabs the the letter and says, well, here's what I think. Um, And it launches them on this, you know, really decades long conversation, much of which happens in their social time. So again, because Friedman is so sort of focused on his interests, um, when, you know, Rose's friends come to New Hampshire, to Vermont, where they have their second home. They're all economists, and their idea of a good time is to sample eight late talking economics. Um, so these out of these conversations come what he eventually publishes as a theory of the consumption function. When I started my research, I had no idea about these other women. Sure, I knew about Rose Friedman, couldn't miss Anna Schwartz. And then I found these letters um, where he's really working out some of his biggest ideas. Um, in these letters. And so one woman is Dorothy Brady, and, and she has a very close personal relationship with a couple. I talk about how they have a, a very um, a, a lost pregnancy, actually a stillbirth. It's very difficult for them, and Dorothy becomes their main support during this time. And then she connects them to Margaret Reed, um, who eventually is up for a position at Chicago. And as she's potentially becoming Friedman's colleague, he decides to take these conversations they've been having and to write them up in a memo to convince his colleagues that they should hire Margaret Reid. He would also like them to hire Dorothy Brady. So eventually, Margaret Reid is hired. Brady gets like a one or two year position. Um, and then from there, you know, they move the the project moves forward. So um, there's one last facet of his interest and his connection with women economists in that Um, goes to the way Friedman was always interested in um, uh, approaches to economic life, approaches to economic analysis that were established and was much slower than the rest of his colleagues to say, now that economics is becoming more quantitative and mathematical and model-driven, we can sort of set aside all the other work that's been done. And Typically, women economists worked on consumption. They were figuring out who bought and sold what. They were deeply empirical, adding up. Who, how many yams did this household buy? What did they pay for a funeral? Do they have a lodger, a boarder? So they were immersed in this sort of empirical research that most economists of Friedman's status had decided was sort of old news. But Friedman was like, well, I still think there's something there. Um, And so it also came from his uh, sort of intellectual orientation that made him more receptive to the expertise these women had rather than assuming that was kind of yesterday's news and the future of economics was purely uh, model driven or mathematical.
0: And theory of the consumption function was was essential uh, for him winning the Nobel Prize. Right. It was one of the most it was one of the papers that was cited foremost um, to justify giving him the prize. Right.
2: Yes, and it, it comes um, before a monetary history. So as I was describing Friedman's you know, rise to fame, the monetary history is really um, what does it for a broader audience. For economists, what really helps restore his um, reputation is this theory of the consumption function because he ties it to um, several key concepts in Keynesian economics. Um, about. Uh, so the consumption function helps you understand how uh, government stimulus spending or the multiplier will affect consumption decisions. And so Friedman provides an alternate way of thinking about this question that's really at the heart of the discipline. Um, And so unlike money, where he's kind of coming in from left field with consumption, he's sort of stepping into a live conversation and um, you know, you have economists who really disagree with Friedman and actually like, personally dislike him, saying <laughs> we have to reckon with this book and everyone is going to have to reckon with this book from now on. So so that that's an important um, publication for him within the field of economics.
0: We've briefly mentioned his wife so far, Rose, director Friedman, who was an uh, accomplished economist uh, in her own right. She stopped uh, short of her Ph.D., although. Later, she got an honorary uh, Ph.D., um, but it's really impossible, I think, to tell the story of Milton Friedman without telling the story of his wife, who was a co-author. Uh, they're really like a dynamic duo uh, over time. How did, yeah. how did Friedman and uh, how did Milton and Rose meet?
2: So they uh, both were at the University of Chicago. They both joined the economics department um, a- in 1932. And let me just pause right there because that's unusual for a woman to be in an economics department in 1932 pursuing her Ph.D. is quite unusual. Um, one part of it is that uh, Chicago was more open uh, to women than maybe other top universities were. A second is that um, she had an older brother who had gone to Chicago and who convinced his parents to let her come to Chicago as an undergraduate. And then he was continuing on for the PhD and he convinced her to continue on to the PhD. So she had an introduction to the department. So Freeman arrives and he's kind of brand new. He doesn't know anybody. Um, Rose, director has technically just begun her PhD program, but she already knows the professors. She knows the students. She's been around the department. um, So she's very comfortable there. And her last name is Director, and Friedman's last name is Friedman, and they're seated alphabetically. So yeah. it's very prosaic in the beginning. He's seated near her in class. <laughs> and, of course, you can imagine this is the one woman in the class uh, surrounded by young men. So um, getting her attention is not an easy task. And it will take a couple of years before they go uh, from a friendship to actually becoming a couple. Um, and then... Um, the, the mores of the time really mean that there's only room for one career um, in a married couple. And specifically, most universities have rules where if they hire the husband, they cannot hire the wife in any paid position whatsoever because it would be considered nepotism. Um, and so if if, if the husband in the couple is going to be an economist, almost by definition, the woman cannot be a professional economist. So so there are a lot of structural reasons she doesn't pursue her degree. She also, um, from from what she says, felt that she would rather devote her time to her family than to pursuing you know, her professional path. So it comes to pass that Friedman is married to a a sort of peer equivalent economist. And so he always has someone interested in his work, talking about what he has to do, um, and also someone who's more interested in how his ideas can be taken to a broader audience. So um, what Rose Friedman really does is sort of provide the motor behind his emergence as a public intellectual. Um, She's the one who puts together capitalism and freedom Um, you know, takes raw material that Milton has and kind of sews it all together and makes it something coherent. She convinces him to do the Newsweek column that's incredibly influential. Um, And then later, she's a co-producer on um, Free to Choose, their PBS TV series, and then with him co-authors the book that comes out. So um, she's really indispensable to the public Milton Friedman, as well as doing the basic work of keeping the family going while he's, you know, immersed in economics in, in his every waking moment.
0: It's yeah. It certainly uh, becomes obvious reading your book that his most major public works, uh, *Free to Choose*, um, uh, *Capitalism and Freedom*, uh, the the great series, just would not have happened uh, without without her work. Something else that comes across though in the book is how intensely private they, uh, appear to be. I mean, I think you mentioned in there that, uh, Rose burned a lot of their correspondence. Uh, yes, that must've made like your the job
2: biographers curse.
0: Yeah. That must've made your <laughs> job very difficult.
2: Uh, you know, uh, on, on, yes, for sure. On the other hand, it might've been more material than even I could manage. Um, but, but it was interesting because yes, if you read two lucky people, which is the memoir they wrote, they quote at length from their letters. And so when I started the project, I was like, great, I would love to see these letters. And, I, you know, I was told they'd been destroyed. And I asked both her children, and they said that, you know, that sounds like something she would do. Um, so I had to find other ways. So that's why these letters to Arthur Burns are so valuable, um, because it's actually the letters between Rose and Milton would really only have captured their early courtship years, um, where the letters to Burns kind of capture the whole arc of his um his career, And then in some cases, like, I, I wasn't really able to say exactly how did she influence the writing of capitalism and freedom because I wasn't able to find any drafts of the book or really any correspondence with the publisher about it. Um, and that was very curious to me. And that makes me think that probably Rose Friedman was worried someone like me would come along and just decided <laughs> to kind of pull, <laughs> pull that more personal material out of the archive. And so, um I guess I can understand her point of view and, um, every, every biography has its challenges and you never have all the sources you want. Um, but I did my best to kind of show their family life. Um, although I was restricted in what I could really document.
0: How was their family life?
2: So, uh, apparently it resembled an economics seminar in many ways. (laughs) Um, you know, just nonstop argument and debate. Um, they had a, a code um, for saying for apologizing. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. I think it was um, number two meant um, I was wrong and you were right. Um, and so the fact that they had these kind of numerical symbols, it, you know, I think is really interesting and really telling. And um, so you know, it was a c- really close family, but it was I think driven by argument and debate um sort of at its core and i i learned that milton was a very laissez-faire parent as you might imagine <laughs> yes. um you know would say to the kids on halloween you go ahead eat as much candy as you want and then i i think apparently after a while he was like okay no i need to take some of the candy away <laughs> um but he he tended to be more lax and rose tended to be more of the sort of dis- disciplinarian and enforcer um but they lived in the university of chicago and hyde park Um, You know, they were in this academic enclave and it it wasn't until the children were, you know, towards the end of their childhood and launching that they realized, oh, like dad's really famous. Um, They kind of that didn't shadow over their childhood, which I think was probably a good thing. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: Now, I, I must admit, as somebody who's read a lot of work by Friedman, I was always sort of baffled by the title of that book because so much of uh, Friedman's work, both the popular work and a lot of the academic work, uh, focuses on uh, human behavior affected by incentives and how a yeah. lot of you know individual initiative responding to incentives uh, is what guides a lot of achievement and social advancement and economic advancement. Uh, But then you have the title of their memoirs and it's uh, luck plays a huge role. What what do you think explains that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think think there's two aspects to it. One is they're looking back at sort of the scope of their life and it's been a very successful life and they're wanting to be modest and they're wanting to be grateful. um, And they're recognizing, you know, had they been born in a different place, none of this would have happened. So um, the villages that they came from turned out to be, you know, stops on the way to Auschwitz, you know, and they they know they would not be alive if they hadn't come to the United States. So part of it is kind of a reflection of that. Um, There is a theme in his, especially in his early work that I try to pull out, and it's pretty much muted by the time he's famous, although you're pointing out it comes back you know, it's not just all about incentives. And he's aware that, you know, in a capitalist system, it's not a simple matter of you get what you deserve, um, because he's aware that people have different endowments and people start from different places. And so one of his major policy ideas that I talk about throughout his life is he starts, his first idea he advocates for is a minimum income. What we today talk about is a universal basic income. and. That's because he just recognizes there are some people who, through fate or fortune or at a moment in time, are not going to be able to compete in this incentive-driven market economy. And so, therefore, what a government should do is provide a basic sustenance, a basic income that people can always rely upon. So he is aware um, that... That luck does play a huge role in this. And and especially in the early part of his career, he's really setting himself up in opposition to particularly American conservatives, um, some American business conservatives who are taking much more, we would call like a social Darwinist line. Like we shouldn't provide any support whatsoever. And, you uh, you know, unemployment support or this or that will ruin incentives. And, you know, people should just sort of take what's coming to them. And he's always opposed to that from the very beginning, both on I think, humanitarian, humanitarian and ethical reasons, and also because he believes that it's not good economic policy, that you need to have some resilience and some supports um, because capitalism is a dynamic, evolving system.
0: And, 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 you know, riffing off or continuing on the luck uh, theme here, one of the more unlucky moments, partially due to his own actions and others, but also unlucky, was when he went to Chile, And, uh, you know, at that time, Chile was ruled by the dictator Augusto Pinochet. Uh, Friedman Mm -hmm. went there to give a a series of lectures uh, down there and actually met with Pinochet. Can can you talk about that and the controversy and how that sort of put a pall over his um, Nobel Prize?
2: Yeah, I think that was one of the more difficult moments for Friedman. And so um, I should just start by saying he believed there was um, going to visit a country, going to advise its government, did not mean endorsing that government. And he had gone to many different places from communist China to Yugoslavia to Chile. And so he saw this as just another thing. If you're an expert in the macroeconomy, particularly you're an expert in inflation, it makes a lot of sense that a country that I think when he came there, it was 300 percent annualized inflation down from 600 percent under Allende. So this was a pervasive inflationary situation. And it just made sense to him. OK, I'm being asked to come and give my advice on how to, um, you know, correct, make this inflation go away, basically. And the other thing is that so then I so I, so knowing that I think it's really important and it's been interpreted as oh, Friedman went to talk with Pinochet because he thought he was a great guy. And that's really not the case at all. Um, and so then uh, the other piece that that is kind of out there is this idea that Friedman's ideas inspired Pinochet or inspired the coup or inspired that. And it really actually happens that um, the economy is doing so poorly and it's about a year into Pinochet's uh, regime that they decide we have such big problems, mainly this 300 percent inflation, we have to do something new. So a new uh, group of economists come to the fore and they invite Friedman to sort of explain what they're doing um, to uh, both to the the inner structure of the regime and to the broader Chilean public. And so that's the context in which he comes. Um, But what happens next is that Pinochet launches an assassination campaign um, and he actually assassinates uh, a former member of the Allende regime on the streets of Washington, D.C. Um, so, so it's a terrible crime. And then just a few weeks later, the Nobel Prize committee gives the prize to Friedman. And so the kind of the combination of those two coming together, it looks like um, this sort of uh, thinking people of the world are okay with Pinochet and have sort of endorsed him by endorsing Friedman, and I think that's an overinterpretation. But <laughs> nonetheless, I can see how that happens given how destructive the Pinochet regime is. So Friedman doesn't see this at all. He really has no idea um, this is coming, and it's a, he, he's sort of dogged by controversy in his public appearances from then on, and. He could never really understand it because, again, he's like, I've been to these other places. I wasn't endorsing the regime when I went there. And and what I think is it's this transitional moment where human rights are kind of emerging as a broad popular concern. And um, Friedman has very much the economist kind of technocratic orientation, like I'm a problem solver and a fixer and I'll go where I'm needed. And there's another set of ideas coming out, which is... Um, a sort of politics of purity and that any engagement is tantamount to endorsement and the way to really telegraph your moral standing is to not engage in anything that might be morally odious and this is just not the perspective that Friedman takes um particularly in a situation where he feels like he has something to say about inflation so um that's a difficult aftermath for him and um I would say over time, he would eventually, he, he tells Pinochet, if you liberalize the economy, eventually you're going to have to liberalize politically. And that is, in fact, what happens in Chile. And I think by the end of his life, he views that um, that, that whole trajectory is ultimately ending in a positive place.
0: That, that is the great irony of this whole episode, is the public speeches, many of them that he gave while he was in Chile, which was just for uh, less than a week, uh, many of them were about how economic freedom and liberalization will lead to political freedom. And even in his only 45-minute meeting uh, with Pinochet, he, he brought that up, as you recount, which is quite a gutsy move, I think, to bring up to, uh, to a dictator. But, you know, if I were to summarize Friedman's thoughts about, uh, about politics, about economics, I think just the phrase capitalism um, and freedom is probably the simplest uh, explanation um, he changed his mind a little bit. He went a little back and forth about capitalism and free markets uh, leading to political freedom and social freedom and in and, and, and different times in his life sort of thought about maybe there's a tension between democracy and freedom. Um, can you describe some of his thoughts about this and where he really sort of ended up by the, by the time um, uh, he got older?
2: Yeah, I think. Uh, and and part of it, part of the story is when he wrote Capitalism and Freedom, he was addressing an American audience and he is, you know, his whole life been a professor in American academia. And he felt you really needed to emphasize economic freedom, that in the 60s, there was not uh, the economic side of freedom in the United States was not fully appreciated. He really wanted to push that forward. So in the aftermath of Chile, he sort of realizes, you know, I've been talking so much about economic freedom, maybe people haven't realized I, political freedom also matters to me. So he starts to recalibrate a little bit and realize that you need both sort of working together. You can't just have economic freedom because if you don't have political freedom, eventually the state will will take over the economic processes. Um So that's kind of one modification. The other comes towards the end of his life as he's um, observing events in Asia. Now, when it comes to China, he remains convinced that China is somewhere on the trajectory that Chile took. He thinks there'll be more Tiananmen squares. He thinks there'll be more protest, And he thinks that eventually the Chinese communist government will fall just as the USSR fell. Um, but what catches his eye are, you know, we might call the Asian tigers or the Asian city states, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, uh, South Korea, that are economically very prosperous but limit political freedom in significant ways. And so he ends up deciding that maybe there's something called civic freedom, which to him is the ability to gather. Um, and and so it's not a totalitarian regime. In other words, you don't have a Stasi or a secret police keeping track of you, but you still can't vote. So you really don't have a choice of your political mm. system, but you have some limited freedom, civic and economic. So, by the end of his life, he's realizing it's more complicated. And I would say the simplicity of capitalism and freedom has a lot to do with the simplicity of the world such that it was when you had, you know, a bipolar world, roughly, you know, United mm-hmm. States representing capitalism and its allies, Soviet uh, Russian, its allies representing uh, communism or a planned economy. It was easier to kind of make these syllogistic claims. After the Cold War, you just see a proliferation of different forms of governance and, and market economies. And so he's trying to sort of adjust what he has to say in the closing years of his
1: life.
0: I mean, one of the um, uh, interesting things is, you know, being ahead of these a lot of these intellectual trends that we've talked about, being ahead of social trends that, that Friedman was, is he was always a fierce critic of communism. Um, but that wasn't unusual. But what was unusual is that so many other folks like John Kenneth Galbraith, um, uh, economist uh, Paul Samuelson, uh, others thought that the Soviet Union uh, was doing fairly well economically. And Friedman sort of always maintained that um, they were kind of a basket case, uh, a basket case economy. Um, Why do you think Friedman was so, I guess, right about that, ahead of his time about that, while so many of these other Uh, Well-known economists were wrong. I mean, Samuelson, I mean, in his textbooks, which everybody had to read, I mean, the dominant economics textbooks, it talked about uh, Soviet economic growth converging uh, with that of the United States over time. Like, what did Friedman see that so many of these other brilliant economists missed?
2: Well, I think some of it goes back to um, his interest in empirical studies. So um, he had a couple of students who were working on the Soviet economy. And so he was paying a little bit more attention to sort of what was um, what you could measure that was not in the official statistics or what was reported. So I think part of it is um, not just assuming that you have a model of how economies develop, but actually questioning what's there underneath um, and then I think part of it is just his his very strong belief that economic growth um, comes from the sort of aggregate of myriad individual decisions, and that that people have to be free to, to um, make individual decisions, um, have individual initiative, and if that was being being snuffed out um, in the Soviet Union, that they would simply would not be able to compete. Now, you know, part of this analysis is is um, drawing on the work and ideas of F.A. Hayek um, and Ludwig von Mises, who basically say you can't really have a price system in a planned economy. And if you don't have a price system, people don't have the information they need Um in order to make good decisions economically. So you're just kind of sh- sh- closing everybody's eyes, and um, there's no way an economy will be able to function in that way. So, um, you know, he's always very ethically opposed to the idea of a planned economy, and he just thinks there's not really any evidence that it will work. And so he's just very suspicious of the claims that it will. Also, because he has no reason to want to believe this, because he does not <laughs> want more economic planning in the United States. And so some of the more credulous economists um, may be credulous because they think it will strengthen their hand in the policy debates within the United States. And that's not uh, meaningful for Friedman.
0: See, what I what, one of the other things that really struck me uh, in your book is you have a few quotes from modern politicians like, uh, you know, President Joe Biden uh, when he was running. Uh, what, one of them is, uh, quote, uh, and he said, uh, and Joe Biden said this during the 2020 campaign Milton Friedman isn't running the show anymore. And then in another occasion, uh, Biden said, "When did Milton Friedman die and become king?" And I thought, I thought these quotes were extraordinary, as they were stated, you know, over a decade after um, Friedman uh, had passed away. I mean, why is Friedman just so important nowadays, even still, that uh, presidential candidates during campaigns in 2020 are talking about him and his ideas.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I found those those quotes fascinating as well. I mean, that's one reason I wanted to write this book, because Friedman is one of those few economists that becomes kind of a touchstone um, after his death and just in in politics and in our thinking about society more broadly. Um, So I think what that really points to is the way in which Friedman's ideas, although he started off, you know, very closely allied with a, a movement that called itself conservative with conservative politicians, Republican politicians, his ideas about um, the importance of market incentives, about the benefits from uh, reducing the size of government, uh, you know, focusing on monetary policy. These kind of flowed out of where they started and became really pervasive um, in the general thinking of people on the left, right, and center. And it can't all be laid at Friedman's feet. And one thing I try to do in the book is show these bigger shifts in um, you know, a- a- economic structures across the world. In-, in the 1970s, inflation has enormous consequences in many different ways. The fall of the Soviet Union has enormous consequences. So Friedman's ideas don't cause these, but they help us interpret and understand them. So when I look at that, Biden quote, what that says to me is it's you might read it at first blush and say this is Biden criticizing Republican economic policy, but it's also Biden criticizing people within the Democratic Party who might be more friendly to Friedman style ideas. And it's really kind of planting a flag of allegiance to a more progressive economic outlook. And so that quote tells you How important Friedman is to kind of intramural Democratic Party politics, as well as being a representative of a sort of consensus Republican view that has been very dominant, I would say, until recently. So so that that just shows you that Friedman has become definitely larger than life and a symbol of, you know, everything that the United States has experienced over the past 50 years. Really,
0: he definitely has become a symbol. Uh, You know, Friedman was a, a scholar Uh, a public intellectual, a policy advisor to presidents and governments uh, around the world. He was a brilliant uh, communicator. You, You watch his TV appearances on Phil Donahue or on PBS or in the Free to Choose series. And the ideas are so clear and well communicated. And, of course, a big supporter of free markets and capitalism. Is there anybody like him alive today who has all of those skills wrapped up into one?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't I don't think there is. And I think I think there's sort of two reasons. One is um, and I mean, there are you know economists who do great work popularizing economic ideas who are known outside of their discipline. Um, so there's there's kind of a lane that Freeman created for public intellectual economist, um, but few of those also have the connections to policymakers, um, and few of the few of them have the, the breadth and depth of, of economic thinking that Friedman have. And, and I think there's kind of two reasons for this. One is what we talked about earlier in the conversation. You know, Friedman is not just Friedman. He has a number of women collaborators who, because of the mores of their day, Cannot be independent intellectuals, and so they pour their intellectual energy and their gifts and their strengths into Milton Friedman, and he tremendously benefits from that um, so that that wouldn 't happen today. you know Margaret Reed today would be um, elevated in her own right and given full support of her colleagues, given a workshop, be training her own students. And and she lives in a world where she has to give her ideas to Friedman for them to go anywhere. And then I also think it's the, just the media landscape. You know, I, I mean, Friedman's on YouTube. He'd be great on YouTube if he were alive. He'd probably have a mean sub stack. Um, but there's nothing like a Newsweek column today. You know, um, it really was the era of big media when you had a few networks, you had a few magazines that, you know, educated people read and we're just in a much more fragmented media landscape. I think it's much harder for one person to emerge as a sort of symbolic figurehead. The last thing I will say is that Friedman became allied with a conservative movement that was sort of growing under the surface for a while, and then burst more into prominence and was looking for people who could carry the message broader. And so he really stood on the top of other conservatives who saw him as a a good spokesperson. And so we have so much political flux today. I think it's harder for an intellectual to stand on top of a coherent, evolving and growing political movement that maybe it will happen. You know, I'll definitely be watching. It It could happen in the next coming years.
0: So there's one last question that I want to ask you. Um, The subtitle of your book, it's Milton Friedman. The subtitle is The Last Conservative. Um, This was, uh, it was surprising to me when I received the book in the mail. Uh, Frankly, you know, I've never really thought of Friedman as a conservative. He often described himself as a liberal or classical liberal. Uh, He said he was a small L libertarian, so not affiliated with the Libertarian Party, but a sort of ideological libertarian at times. Uh, He said he was a Republican at different times. He said he was a radical. Um, But I never got the sense conservative. Why did you uh, choose that subtitle, the last conservative, both the last part and the conservative part?
2: You know, there's a couple of different reasons I did, and I'm very aware that Friedman um, did not call himself a conservative and uh, would probably not like the title of the book. <laughs> um, he didn't go so far as F.A. Hayek did to write an essay, "Why I'm Not a Conservative." And maybe if he had written that essay, I would say, "I can't, you know, I can't move forward <laughs> with this title." But um, I, I kind of mean it in two ways. One is when you look at his, um, the people he interacted with. Um, the people he gave his ideas to within American politics, those who found him most compelling, most of those people called themselves conservatives. And conservatism in the United States is different than conservatism in other countries, in large part because it incorporates um, what in other countries is called liberalism or neoliberalism, a celebration of the market. And celebrating capitalism, which is a dynamic economic system, is in some ways in tension with being conservative because um, it, it drives a lot of social change. Nonetheless, in the United States, you have this sort of hybrid political movement of people who are socially or religiously conservative, um, with economists dedicated to the free market, um, with, you know, uh, during the Cold War era, uh, uh, people who felt very strongly Soviet Russia needed to be combated. These people come together, they call themselves conservative, they're called by others conservative, and Friedman is part of this movement. So that's just sort of empirically um, a reason to call him that. The other way that is maybe even more substantive is came from understanding his approach as an economist, which was, to look at ideas, um, traditions, and approaches that had defined the discipline that were really being left behind in the post-war era and to say, like, hold on a second, there's something here worth conserving. And so I do see him as someone who conserves the kind of inherited wisdom of his discipline. So monetarism is based on the quantity theory of money, you know, an older idea that most economists in the 50s said, you know, it's not really relevant anymore. Likewise, the very practice of doing empirical historical research um, was very out of fashion. And so I think that was his intellectual orientation. I think within American um, society, it was his political orientation. In terms of the last, I mean, that's really um, gesturing a little bit to the current state of affairs where conservatism is very much in flux and I think contested and up for grabs. And the type of conservatism that Friedman represented, that synthesis of free market capitalism, uh, religious traditionalism, and an aggressive foreign policy and a, a sort of orientation to global markets and to global influence, that synthesis, and the pieces are all there, but they don't come together in the same coherent way they did when Freeman was at the height of his influence. So um, I think it's sort of a provocation and sort of an <laughs> invitation. We don't know if he's the last conservative or not. Um, it might look like that right now. Um, for some people that will be cause for celebration, for others cause for loss, but you know, the book is not yet written. So uh, with my book, I wanna give people um, resources to think about kind of how we got here and to think what, what in our past Um, do we want to carry with us into the future?
0: Well, thank you very much, Professor Burns. Uh, It certainly was a provoking uh, title. It certainly provoked me. uh, But the book is really wonderful. (laughs) Um, It's well-written. It's thorough. It gives insights into his life that I had no idea of. And the book, again, is uh, Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. So thank you for writing it, and thank you for being here today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you are interested in podcasts about nonfiction books, listen to C-Span's Booknotes Plus podcast for interviews with authors and historians, hosted by Brian Lamb.